I've been through in Edinburgh for the day. This is Slits and Giggles, by the way. S L I T S. Slits. I've had As some questionable glances. <laughs> I was thinking like a slight throat, but okay. No, oh, when you said, <laughs> but like, right, that was the point. When you came up with the concept and the name, and you said slits and giggles, I was like, oh, so you mean you're fanny? And now you've just said slit the throat, and I'm like, Jesus Christ! It was a play on words. All right, it was thought, meant as both. All oh, right, I didn't. I just thought it meant fanny because <laughs> everything does, obviously. Your gash. Your gash. <laughs> <laughs> Wizard sleeve. <laughs> They just spilt tea out our nose. So right. we've had a couple of drinks. So yeah. and I haven't eaten since yeah you haven't half past two this to morning to eat. I had some sausage, 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 some German sausage. Yeah. You uh, yeah, you didn't know what sausage to get. I, I th- couldn't handle sausage today. Yeah, I, I'm a bit of a sausage connoisseur. <laughs> sausage queen. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> well, this is off to a good start. Oh, well, fuck it. Jade's in Edinburgh, she's at yes. my house. We had such a good day. And, uh, yeah, we've been out this... Well, I was out last night for a start. <laughs> yeah. I had two slices of toast and a slice of bread yesterday, then went out for drinks at a wake for some guy it's I don't like, know. Freaky Friday, like, usually it's me that's out drinking. Yeah. Constantly. <laughs> so it's like, I was in bed like a good girl. I was out on the piss at a wake for a guy I don't know, but he's my, he's Izzy's friend, and he's actually Tiddles. Uh, well, uh, they were they were workmates. Oh, really? I mean, yeah. yeah. Um. So we were out till three this morning because we decided we go to Ox One Forty Eight for yeah. a burger or a steak. Oh, one of the guys was telling me, um, it was an inconclusive autopsy. Uh huh. Oh, but because when murder, murder, <laughs> when the guy when. His friend got there to check on him. He thought, can't hurt to give him an EpiPen just to see if it... Oh, fuck! So it's on the autopsy... On the autopsy... <laughs> why is his heart still beating? Oh. On, on this autopsy, it's inconclusive what the cause of death was, but they did find a puncture wound <laughs> from a needle. And this guy's like, oh, shit. The coroner's running out into the street going, there's been a murder! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we shouldn't really be laughing. Yeah. It was really sweet, though. Yeah. And I, I feel really shitty for saying sweet. The guy was diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> his, nickname, <laughs> his nickname was Sugar. Oh, my God. And his flatmate keeps referring to his flat as now being sugar-free. They <laughs> <laughs> had sugar cubes oh, on all the tables. Bad. But funny. <laughs> it's, I, a, it's a grim humour. It's a very Scottish grim yeah, Gallic like humor. Scottish funerals, like if you went to a Scottish funeral, you'd possibly be surprised that so many people are laughing. So much fun. Like, see, this sounds ridiculous. Like, we look forward to wakes because they're fun. <laughs> and? Yeah. Oh, and it's just been, it's been miserable and dreech. Dreech and dreary. Aye. So, like, literally, like, damp and not in the good way. And then I was so happy to get in the flat and like, do you ever go for a pee when you're that cold that you actually really it enjoy Because the pee keeps you up. And I'm like sitting in the toilet, doing a pee, rubbing my nipples because they're so, so fucking sore. Yeah, like colder than a witch's tit. I don't know how cold a witch's tit is, but I've heard Never had cold. given a feeler one. Yeah, I've never. I know a few witches I could introduce you. Yeah, well, my grand calls me one, so I mean... How cold are my tits? Well, <laughs> colder than my own tits. Right, so this podcast that we're doing, it's um, Scottish history. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, I'm Jade. Oh, and I'm Fiona. We, you will be able to, hopefully through time, tell the difference, because... 
I've got a Glaswegian accent. And I have a mismatched Edinburgh... Arbroath. Arbroath northern <laughs> accent. And I pick up jades yeah. as we go Although along. Although I, I talk quite proper for a You do. You, you're a very classy wee jade. Oh, I'm very... I put the arse <laughs> in class, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you would uh, if you had seen me in Barcelona, oh. I was comedy gold. Well, did you see my chicken dance? Oh, I did. It was Did beautiful. you like my chicken dance? It was beautiful. Yeah, I, actually I might bought, save the video and yeah, put it on. I, I've actually page. bought a chicken mask and a horse one I feel like chicken tonight yeah yeah. as you would uh, if you had seen me in Barcelona I was comedy gold did you see my chicken dance oh I did it was did you like my chicken dance it was beautiful I I might save the video and put it on I've actually bought a chicken mask and a horse one. I feel like chicken tonight. Yeah, like. yeah. As you would, uh, if you had seen me in Barcelona, oh. I was comedy gold. Well, did you see my chicken dance? Oh, I did. It was. Did beautiful. you like my chicken dance? It was beautiful. Yeah, I actually I might bought, save the video. And yeah, put it on. I, I've actually page. bought a chicken mask and a horse one. I feel like chicken tonight. Yeah. Like. So Barcelona was fun. Yeah. Barcelona. Yeah. But the whole like our apartment was like on the third floor. You have to walk up the stairs and it didn't have a lift and my legs got a heavy workout. I was quite happy with well, that. Well see, being in Edinburgh today, everywhere you've gone is uphill. Yeah, so. Edinburgh's... And I'm like, you said to me, like... Everywhere after, you go is uphill, yeah, even when you're going you, home. You asked me, why don't you move to Edinburgh? And I was like, the thought of all those hills to even get to my house. Because um, I was like thinking I had to move because at the end of my road, um, somebody got shot in the face. And then drove off to the Indian restaurant yeah. down the street. It was at Vets. <laughs> like, I've never, like, got fucking a load in the face and thought, <laughs> I need an Indian. <laughs> like, that is the last thing I need when I've taken a load to the face. <laughs> that common occurrence, <laughs> As we said, we are Sluts and Giggles. This is our third episode, and if you have come back, thank you so much. Hello. We've missed yep. you. Yep. Yeah, I think we've already said our name. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Sorry, I've got the memory of a goldfish. Because I drink like a goldfish. Speaking of, here is your... Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, as I said, thanks for tuning in again. I posted something about... Um, I was talking... The, our last podcast, you were doing... William, the, yeah, William Henry Burry, yeah, the Ripper. Yeah, and I was telling you about that bar in London. It was the White Heart. And it was... Um, the reason it was connected to the case was one of the suspects, um, oh, Polish guy, worked in the basement in the barbers and one of the purported first victims was found less than 50 yards, which was down the alleyway, yeah, just behind the bar. Yeah, so that was... I posted that in our group and our Instagram. Oh, today's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, we've, you came... You got through here at, like... One. one o'clock and, and it's now platform. 20 to 6 <laughs> yeah. fuck yeah. yeah it's now 20 to 6 and we've not even started the topic yeah. so we're doing well so sorry you're going to have to put up with our shite for a bit longer hmm. yeah we've got our two subjects picked yes we do what are you talking about today? so yeah I'm talking about Greyfriars Kirkyard today uh-huh. now anyone who's been to Edinburgh Old Town has probably been to Greyfriars Kirkyard Edinburgh itself there's been traces of human habitation in the area going back as far as 8,500 BC. So that's a fair while ago. That's like ten and a half thousand years. I just a wee bit. 
Um, in the first century AD, the Romans made their way to the Lothians because they did get into Scotland for a bit. But they were too fucking fear. <laughs> but um, when they got to the Lothians, they encountered a Celtic Brythonic tribe in what's now known as Cramond. And the name of the tribe was recorded as Votadini. There was a fortress built in the area around 140 AD by the Romans. This fortress was occupied until about 170 AD, so for about 30 years, when the Romans buggered off back down south. Because, you know, we're a scary bunch and they just couldn't handle us. <laughs> so, so, it was actually occupied again for a few years in the early 200s, but that fort grew into what's now known as the city of Edinburgh. So fast forward a few centuries and through the warfare, the feuds and everything that happened up until 10th century, where the Glothians area was abandoned to the Scots, probably being ceded to uh, the Lothians, uh, probably ceding the Lothians to King Idulf, the aggressor, leaving it in the jurisdiction of the Scots. So in 973 AD, Edinburgh was formally given to King Kenneth II of Scotland. Um, so Scottish rule over the area was secured after Malcolm II's victory against the Northumbrians at Cartham in 1018. Now, around 1130, King David I named Edinburgh as one of the earliest royal boroughs in Scotland. So, protected by his fortress... Homes and businesses sprung up on the slope leading down what is now Castle Rock. Okay. One of the old volcanic stacks. So, yeah, um, we beat the Northumbrians in 1018 and King David I named Edinburgh as one of the earliest royal boroughs in Scotland in about 1130. So Castle Rock, all the businesses sprang up because, you know, he had the king, well, the king and his fortress and everything was right there right next to the train station, conveniently enough. And that's the area that goes down towards the, where the, the Holyrood house is now. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it, that time it would have gone to where the World's End pub is. Okay. That's where the Flodden Wall surrounded ah, the city. I've never been that way. Eh, well, I've... you're coming back next week, yeah. so we've got a couple Farm of tours. But um, there's also another bit which ran parallel on the other side, and that was the Cannon Gate, which, you know where that is? Yeah. Yeah, so you go down diagonally into the grass market, and then <laughs> under the bridge, and you're in the cow gate. Uh-huh. So now this is where all the souvenir and tourist attractions and stuff are today. By the 14th century, Edinburgh was considered the official capital of Scotland. So, as Edinburgh moved from the medieval era into the age of the Reformation, Wikipedia actually distinguishes it as being the the exact year 1560. Changes were occurring within the city, and they had some issues with, you know, what do we do with all these corpses piling up? Um, At the southern edge of Edinburgh's old town, just off the grass market, which is the one down Diagon Alley, Victoria Street, (laughs) um, where old Tommy Weir lived! Major Thomas Weir. Oh, yeah. Anyway, as <laughs> the southern edge of Edinburgh's old town, just off the grass market, you've got Greyfriars Kirk, and it's surrounded, obviously, by the Kirkyard. Kirk being the Scots word for church, oh. Kirkyard being the graveyard. 
Now, this was established in 1561-62 on the site of what had been a Franciscan priory. So grey friars literally refer to the yeah. friars that wore the robes. But the uh, priory had been dissolved in 1559. And it was built due to the lack of space in general in Edinburgh because it was within the Flodden walls. They, did, they built up instead of down, but they were starting to expand. So it was used during the Great Plague as a mass burial ground for the victims. They Basically, they would dig a giant hole, chuck the bodies in and set them on fire, cover it up. St Giles Cathedral in the centre, um, that's the big pointy one. St Giles Cathedral, they decided that they didn't want that area to be a graveyard anymore because, you know, they didn't have the embalming techniques and stuff yeah. and the smell in the summer, Did- right in the city centre. They basically picked it all up and chucked it unceremoniously into what is now Greyfriars Kirkyard. So skip forward a bit, hop, skip and a jump to 1638 and... The Kirkyard was used as a place of free legal public assembly. So it was used for things like rallies and signing things like the National Covenant, which demanded a free Scottish Parliament and General Assembly, which would give them the ability to govern themselves without interference of the King in England and his increasing attempts of anglicising Scotland. Obviously, this is just... a. F- couple of decades after the Union of the Crowns in 1604. So people are a bit, what's happening? It's a bit up in the air. You know, your king is now in England. He's being influenced by the English elite. Yeah. And it's starting to change. He's taken on their beliefs. Yeah. And he starts trying to bring these into Scotland. And he actually published an English-style prayer book and distributed it through Scotland and that was, like, one of the main turning points. Can I also ask, like, this, like, when, even in present day and we talk about independence, like, this had been going similar. It's so similar. Like, the way that the parliament, the government, treated the Scots, they fought for it over 100 years. At one point, it was even illegal to be in support of the Scottish king. Like well, that's what this is. Yeah. It's the Covenanters, it the Presbyterians. Was, yeah, yeah, but it's interesting, like hearing these stories and how we're treated is very like to what we're not to go off in Iran. What we're going through just now with Brexit, it's something so we never voted for, yet we are going to have to do. We don't have a choice. We've never had a choice when it comes to our politics and what happens to our country. So yeah. yeah, no, it's fine. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this. Yeah. is because of the it's similarities. So important to know this in the stuff. politics. Yeah, it's been going on. It's just it's a cycle. It. It itself. And it, it sounds horrible, like, they the, the call Scotland the brave because we fought so hard. We've got such pride in our country. We're such a friendly country. and We're one of the most progressive. Yeah. Norway and Scotland discovered oil at the exact same time. Yeah. Which one is but, rich and which one is dirt poor? Norway. Any hoozle. The Covenanters were pretty pissed about the whole you need to be more English nonsense. Bite my shite. Bite my shite. Rather shit in my hands and clap. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Have you not heard that? No. Oh, it might be an Edinburgh one. It might be. <laughs> I have never heard of that. Maybe shite. Dundee. I might actually use that. It's a good one. It I is. like it. Because usually my answer is bite my shite. Canada have a similar one. The dark poutine guys, one of the things they say is go shit in your took, which is go shit in your hat. <laughs> 
Anyways, so yeah, they were like, nope, we want to be Scottish. They were mostly Presbyterian. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of them were quite radical. Thomas Weir, he yeah. was Presbyterian. Mm. Our old witchy buddy. And there's another very important guy involved in the whole Covenanter story. His name is Bloody George Mackenzie. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? No. Bloody George Mackenzie was a staunch royalist and very much in support of the king. He was totally against the idea of separate state mm-hmm. and yeah. Kirk and everything What's in Scotland. The union? Yeah, no, he was a fan of the Union. He oh. loved it. No, that's what I'm saying. He wanted the oh, Union. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misheard. But he was so against it, in fact, that following the defeat of the Covenanters at the Battle of Bothwell Brig in 1679... Well, there was a battle there, 22nd July of yeah. 19, uh, 1679. Lang where there was a battle as well. Ooh. Battlefield. Well, that could be a, a topic for yeah. another one. So yeah, 22nd June 1679, he had some 1,200 Covenanters rounded up and 400 or so were said to be incarcerated in Greyfriars Kirkyard. So... Greyfriars now is quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, Bedlam was built on a lot of the land. Um, there's George Harriet School. Yeah. And there's it's really quite small now. But back then, it's basically a, a four-acre field with a few tombs and Fuck. Right. Okay. Um, no shelter. And Scottish elements aren't exactly great. And mm. they were there for quite a while. Yeah. So... There's no food other than a penny loaf each, apparently, a day, and some water between them. And you, like because of the conditions that these men were subjected to, a lot of people say that this was the first concentration camp. <laughs> it was that bad. Yeah. Um, locals did try and help. Like They would try and throw money over the wall and stuff, but it didn't really money go Money can't really get you very far. Money, food. But So, yeah, they would try and throw food over the walls and stuff, but not much could be done. The Covenanters, they began to succumb to the elements, yeah. obviously. Most of the prisoners, the ones who hadn't been either transported to the colonies or to work on plantations, uh-huh. or having been executed for refusing to swear an oath to the English king, yes. the ones that were left, a lot of them died due to exposure. Mm. Um, so you're in this big field with your friends. Some of them have already already been killed because they won't give up. Some of them are off in the colonies or on the plantation. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Only because I've been watching so much Outlander, right? Oh dear. And some of the prisoners they took to the colonies, right? What were the colonies? I was thinking when I thought of colonies, I thought Australia. Yeah. Like there was also colonies in. India, Asia. So this was like even before everywhere. the slave trade. Yeah, this was like yeah, because there was bones. East India Trading of, Company type. And, yeah, there was bones found in Africa of like white people that were slaves. Yeah, so that's what would have happened to a lot of these guys. So obviously not much fun for them. A few years later, bloody George Mackenzie's dead, and where's he buried? Right by the graves and the 
area in which he had imprisoned all these men. Wow. So his final like his final resting place is of course in Greyfriars Kirkyard, mere feet mere feet from the makeshift prison which had claimed so many lives and amongst the graves of some of those that had died. Mm-hmm. So they're like buried next to each other. Right. Um very much doubt any party involved would be very happy about that and it's said that due to this situation that old Georgie can never truly rest in peace. Good. Yeah. Right, so following Mackenzie's interment within his black mausoleum, that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. I'll show you it next week. Okay. Because we're doing a tour. Maybe. <laughs> not to be this way. <laughs> but over the next couple hundred years, if you don't count things like being the centre of Scotland's capital during the Jacobite Rebellion, epicentre of <laughs> the epicentre of the Scottish Enlightenment. So following him being buried in the Kirkyard, like the next couple of hundred years were pretty quiet if you don't count things like being the centre of Scotland's capital city when the Jacobite Rebellion was going on. Mm-hmm. Um epicentre of body snatching involving people like the legendary failed grave robbers Birkenhair, home to a lost dog looking for his dead master's spirit, Percy and Mary Shelley consummating their marriage on Mary's mother's grave. Oh, fancy. Um, her mother, by the way, was Mary Wollstonecroft, who's very important in the beginnings of feminism. Oh, wow, cool. So that's pretty cool. Um, and, of course, it's been inspiration for authors like Mary Shelley. Yeah. She wrote Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was because of the grave robbing mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Dickens was inspired to write A Christmas Carol, having seen like the orphans and the urchins from Bedlam by the walls. Mm-hmm. They were inspiration for like the ghosts and things. And, obviously, good old J.K., J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. uh, got a bunch of her experience... Uh, exp- her inspiration from the graveyard. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, 1998, however, Scotland, you know, not really well known for weather at the best of times, but late December... 1998? 1998. Wow. So up until about 1998, things were pretty quiet. And now, obviously, we see it. I think we've said it in every episode. Oh. And we probably will keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. The weather is shit. It's a fucking shite. But yeah, so 1998, it's December, it's a particularly nasty night, and there's a homeless man who decides he's going to try and get some shelter and oh. f- finds himself in the Black Mausoleum. Ooh. So yeah, that's that, some four-star I'm accommodation. I'd homeless <laughs> and staying there, to be honest, it sounds spooky as fuck. But I mean, pretty desperate. Yeah, yeah, um, true. And, of course, at this point, it had been pretty much quiet. Uh-huh. So, looking for shelter, he makes his way into the into the mausoleum. And while he's there, he thinks, I'm going to have a look around. He removes the iron grate and walks down a, f- a flight of stone steps, mm-hmm. which takes him into the second chamber underneath the mausoleum. And there's four coffins there. So, you know, what are you going to do? Obviously, you're going to start smashing up the coffins, seeing if you can, f- yeah. I don't know, maybe looking for valuables, maybe just curious. But he's breaking up these coffins, and as he's doing this, the ground beneath him starts to crumble, 
and he falls Fuck. into a third chamber. That's like some Indiana Jones shit right yeah. there. And he falls into what is quite probably one of the illegal plague pits. Fuck. So these bodies, they've not been done... They've not been embalmed right? Yeah. They've just been thrown in a hole and yeah. left. So they're still decomposing. Oh. The ground is slimy. There's yeah, that was fucking reeking. Horrific. So, of this course... 1998? 1998. So, how are the bodies still decomposing? Surely they Well, it depends on, on the conditions. Oh, right. But there's, like, slime and stuff and oh, all the oh. bits of... So, he obviously is terrified. There's all these bodies lying everywhere. Slimy, stinking cavern rotting remains and of course George Mackenzie is just upstairs with <laughs> whoever he's been buried with so he freaks out he bolts and as he's running out covered in all this slime this ragged oh. haggard old homeless oh, man comes hope. flying out of this tomb screaming Fuck. while one of the night watchmen is going around his rounds <laughs> Terrifies the poor man and his dog. He'd be fucking traumatised. He also bolts. That is what became of Greyfriars, Bobby. (laughs) But yeah, he bolts too. So, yeah, which I can can understand. And this sort of... This incident sort of frees George Mackenzie's spirit. Oh, Jesus. But, um, so yeah... I'm pretty sure that they got quite a fright. And I doubt that George Mackenzie would have been too happy with the whole crushing up his coffin. Yeah, being disturbed yeah. from his rest. So, seemingly free from his final resting place, it's said that Mackenzie's spirit now roams the kirkyard, causing all sorts of incidents. And if you want to have a really good idea of the sort of stuff that goes on... Yeah. Um... One of my favourite books is City of the Dead by Jan Andrew Ed- Jan Andrew Edwards. Yes. Um, he's a local boy, really knows his stuff, and Excellent. he should, because he's also written a book about the Mackenzie Poltergeist himself. Oh, wow. Itself. Um, it's called The Ghost That Haunted Itself. <laughs> it's such a good book. I actually had nightmares because of the book, and I don't know why. The ghost that haunted itself. Imagine it's being so a ghost good. and being that fucking scared of yourself. <laughs> oh, fuck. But yeah, so he spent a fair chunk of his life researching it. He actually lived next to the graveyard overlooking uh-huh. the tombs and the uh-huh. the graves. And he is the one who started up the tour that I'm taking you on next oh, week. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. He sometimes still does tours as well, so yeah. maybe we'll hear awesome. him. It's also the only tour that gives access to the Covenanters prison. Oh, amazing. Where the majority of the ph- phenomena occurs. Yay! And where I'm taking you for your birthday. Right, so a lot of people have an idea of what poltergeist activity consists of. Like, if I said poltergeist, what would you think? I would think, because is there not different, like, uh, like things that it's got to meet, like for a poltergeist, it needs to be able to pick up an object. Yeah, poltergeist. And move it. Yeah. And... Is it in a negative way? Like a negative form? Generally, it is, yeah. But sometimes, yeah, poltergeist comes from the German, which literally means noisy ghost. So you'll hear bangs and scrapes. Yeah. You'll have objects moving. You'll have little kids being sucked into the TV, like in a film. Oh, yeah, yeah. That won't happen. For a moment, I thought you were busy. You were going with it. It was great. 
But yeah, so objects moving sounds out of nowhere, but there are also a lot more sinister things associated yeah. with them. It tends to be a lot of them man- uh, they manifest around specifically young girls going through yeah. puberty. Can happen when boys are going through it as well, but it's something what, just about like vampires. It's <laughs> something and about <laughs> maybe, but it's something about the energy and it manifests in this sort of destructive way. So it's not just PMS. No, not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, the very first incident of poltergeist of poltergeist activity occurring in the graveyard happened the very next day. Mm. So, this was, by the way, the same day that the night. The groundskeeper from the night before had come Died? <laughs> no, he's <laughs> come into time. work, told everyone what happened, and promptly gave his notice and walked out of his job. <laughs> which I totally understand, you know, you've got this... Fuck that. <laughs> just this zombie just rising from the tomb and running, screaming towards him. Minimum wage does me cut that. <laughs> minimum wage, minimum effort. <laughs> but yeah, so the next day, two women were walking in the kirkyard... And they were accosted by an invisible attacker who threw one woman to the ground and strangled another so hard that she was left with bruises on her throat. And there was nothing there. Yeah, so activities continued since. And there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of reports of of attacks from the Mackenzie Poltergeist. But shit really started to kick off in 2004. Now, this is when these two teenage boys thought it would be a fun idea to break into the crypt, which, of course, has already been disturbed yeah. on the night of the homeless zombie-looking teenage guy. boys are the worst. Yeah. Fucking leave the crypt alone. So, these fine, upstanding young gentlemen, they proceeded to remove Mackenzie's head from his body and they put it on his hand, on, on, their, on one of their hands... And use it like a, a glove puppet. Oh my! And you knew where that was going. <laughs> I just like got the skull and he's hanging. Bar, 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 bar. How are you doing? Um, they played football with his skull, and according to some sources, simulated sex acts with it. <laughs> so you know, classy lads. Yeah. So funnily enough, Georgie boy wasn't too happy about this, and it said that the area is now cursed by him. Uh, well. I'd fucking cuss it if the Yeah, I'd be pretty pissed, yeah. My head is a fucking football. So, he's up the ante on his attacks, and they are significantly violent and often destructive. So, reports from victims vary in their extremity. During tours, people might report fluctuations in temperature, feelings of being watched, being touched, having their hair pulled. That's pretty general paranormal activity. But some become dizzy. um, Some are physically sick, some have fainted. Yeah. And, and some have shot themselves. People regularly come away with physical evidence of their attacks, like with some have been left with scratches, with burns. But yeah, so people will they'll come away with scratches, burns, bruises and even bite marks. Mm-hmm. Um I've even seen pictures of people who have broken bones. Jesus. From this tour. Now po- I don't think I want to go. Oh it's so much fun. I've been twice. <laughs> um, now, the poltergeist doesn't just attack people. Um, they found bodies like of birds uh-huh. in the Covenanters prison. No marks on them. It's like they've just dropped dead and there's loads of them. Really? Yeah. Um, fires 
spring up out of nowhere throughout the graveyard and in the buildings surrounding it. Wow. John Andrew Henderson. I don't know why I said Edwards. So John Andrew Henderson, for example, he is the one that wrote the book on the Mackenzie Poltergeist, literally. Uh Uh-huh. All his research, everything he's done. I think I've lost some notes. (laughs) Um, I'm missing a page. I'll wing it. But he has worked for literally years uh-huh. on this, collecting evidence. He's constantly being sent emails and letters yeah. with people people saying, this happened to me. Yeah. Um, but the book, The Ghost That Haunted Itself, following the publication of that book, I've written publication, obviously I've been thinking about dogs. That'd <laughs> <laughs> be so cute. Oh, I just thought of dog publications. <laughs> but yeah, so... His flat, which is the one that overlooked the graveyard, uh-huh. just after this book was published, his flat just caught fire. Oh, wow. No reason, reason could be found, not that I could see. He lost literally everything. Fuck. But there was, like, no damage to the adjoining properties. That's weird. Yeah. And, like, the... And there's been other flats as well have had mysterious fires with no Fuck. cause. Now, the only thing by the way, that he saved, that I can find, that he's mentioned, he has a backup of his notes on a hard disk or uh-huh. a, com- a hard drive or a computer at uh-huh. a different location, and oh, that's fuck. the only reason he still reason? has his network Jesus. his stuff. His reasoning being, he'll not be outsmarted by something that lives in a tomb. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he sounds like a fun guy. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking I might actually attach him in a tweet when I'm because yeah. I love his books so much. Yeah, of course. It'd be pretty cool yeah. if he heard well, this. Uh, <laughs> and like, he could maybe answer questions. He's yeah. got a website, actually, and yeah. if you do have questions, uh-huh. one, read the books, two, you can message him directly yeah. on his web. Also, feel free to ask us questions yeah. on social media, yeah. and we'll try and answer them. Yeah, we have Instagram, which is Giggle Slits. Uh, no, our Instagram is Slits and Giggles. Our Twitter is Giggle Slits, because Slits and Giggles was already taken. Our Gmail is giggleslits at gmail.com. And then we've got Facebook as well, which yeah. is just Slits and Giggles Podcast. Yeah, we've got a group and a page there. Group and a page, yeah. yeah. So get joining. Um, my voice is getting really bad, so I <laughs> think fun. I'm going to have to leave it at that for that now. Was, no, it was pretty informative. Like, Oh, actually, when I was doing this, I was doing more research and I found out that those two boys uh-huh. that broke in, they did We're, not go to jail or anything. One was 17, one was 15. But is there not a law against, like, they, doing something to a dead body? They actually were tried under the old laws that were written for grave robbers, yeah. body snatching. Uh-huh. Yeah. They were the first... In a old, sec- what is it, desecrating a... Desecrating a corpse. Yeah. Uh-huh. But they had specific laws written when the grave robbers and body snatchers Skull were going fucking. about. When the grave robbers and body snatchers were going about. Like working here, and yeah. Uh-huh. They had laws written because most a lot of our laws are from like we have some ridiculous laws and they haven't ever been changed. They're from that era. Like you're legally still not allowed to serve a prostitute alcohol. Yeah. Like in Scotland, it's considered illegal, but it's not actually adhered to because it's that ancient. That. Yeah. Well, nobody had been tried under those laws in Scotland in over a hundred years. Wow. They got three and two years so, probation, respectively. Can I ask that tomb? Was that, like, the Edinburgh Caves, then, that they fell into? No, it would have been... Um, are you thinking the vaults? Yeah, the vaults, that's no, it. No, they're one. inside the bridges. Yeah. Um, Greyfriars Kirkyard, there are literally 
thousands of bodies in there. Yeah. It started off as a valley. Uh-huh. Like, and now it overlooks the entire city. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, the necropolis, which I was talking about. Yeah. Because you've actually got the southern and it's the like, northern, it's yeah. that big. Well, this is, it's now really small. Like I say, it used to, like, what is now the Covenanters prison is just a tiny portion of what really? was once a four-acre wow. parcel of land. Like, they've built up around it, so... So they just got, didn't care about any yeah. of the bodies? So it's gone from it's being a deep valley to a hill overlooking the entire city. That's how many wow. bodies there are in that <laughs> graveyard. Oh, my God. Prime real estate. People were just yeah. dying to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... <laughs> right. <laughs> right, so yours was... I like yours. Yeah. So... Your turn. Yep. I... Oh, Jesus. Uh, I am going to talk about, um, this is actually going to be four parts, like I've said before, the square mile of murder. Nice. <laughs> There's been a murder. There's been a murder. Um, which is an area in Glasgow. These murders were all quite prominent for the times. The, the square mile of murder was a string of four murders that happened within a square mile from the Blycewood Hill area of Glasgow, um, which is just literally, like, part of the city centre now, onwards towards Charing Cross, which is now bisected by the M8 motorway. This was obviously before this happened. The motorway was built. The murders happened between 1857 to 1908. Usually, most people, when you think of Glasgow, they would have thought, oh, they take place in the east end of the city because it was a poorer area and thought that there was a higher crime rate there. Actually, um, the most prominent murders and crimes actually took place in the west end of Glasgow, which was the wealthier area. And I suspect that they were better known because of the times um, they were considered sensational. And it wasn't really, the sensation wasn't around the crimes. It was about the fact that kind of rich people committed to them, committed them, because more religious back then, um, morals were very important, respectability, and like... For something like this to happen would ruin a whole family. Like unspeakable, uh, completely unspeakable, and families would disown family members over it. Like they probably do now, actually. But this was—I don't actually think it would be that different. Like I think it's worse now because of social media. Yeah. But it was an embarrassment to be, I suppose, the talk of the town back then, oh, especially yeah. if you hung about with the social elite. No other place at the time had four murders committed in such a small area of the city. All of these cases, they did differ because some of the elements which saved some of the people, they actually condemned others and that was due to prejudice and respectability. Um, Basically, you were more likely to get away with a crime if you were rich than you were poor, basically, which I suppose also still stands. Yeah. Surprisingly... I didn't know this, that Glasgow was considered fairly respectable. Um, it's always had a name, a like, no-mean city. Um, but in the Victorian ages, it was um, respectable. Considering today, it does have a poor reputation of crime, which isn't actually deserved. And it also makes people quite wary still to visit Glasgow. Well, I mean, someone got shot in the face outside your house yesterday. Yeah, but, I mean, that's never happened before (laughs) that I know of. (laughs) Like, it's mostly down to media. Sensationalism again, um, scaremongering to sell papers. It's like, to scare them away from coming to Glasgow, which is 
I think, quite nice, but I'm from there, so... Well, it's like the whole if-it-bleeds-it-reads type mentality. If there's, like, gore and, like, oh, sensationalising... If it bleeds... It reads, then it'll sell more newspapers. Oh, right. No, I was thinking, like, when guys are talking about the correct oh, age cap set. Yeah. <laughs> if it bleeds, it breeds. <laughs> One person was actually quoted as saying, in relation to this view of Glasgow being quite rough and dangerous that you've only got to flash a razor in Glasgow to get on the front page. Even though it was respectable in some ways, Victorian and Edwardian Glasgow was a lot worse than today. I mean, it's considered bad today. It was considered even worse back then. But you'd think in these well-off areas, this wasn't an issue. Like, respect today is very important and it always has been in Glasgow. And at the time, it was never actually suggested a crime capital. And at least nowadays, we've got a, a London doing us a favour in yeah. that regard, at least. A lot of the area in the Square Mile no longer stands. Buildings that were once prominent, um, like there was big hotels and fancy places, they were knocked down to make way for a motorway running through the city mm-hmm. um, to connect, I think, the north to the south. All right. Some of the places do still remain, but they're no longer, like, grand terraces. Like, there's some beautiful terraces. There are now offices. Um, and there was nice landscapes in the city, even. But yeah. they've, it's just now a big motorway. They used to be townhouses, terraces, prominent hotels and tea houses, frequented by those who could afford it. I thought you said hookers. Yeah, hookers. Sorry. <laughs> they probably could. Yeah. I hate that word. So... The first part of this is about a girl, a wee lassie called a girl. Madeline Hamilton Smith. She was born on the 29th of March in 1835 in Sucky Hill Street. She was a well-known socialite in, socialite in the area um, who was born to a very wealthy family. Madeline was, she was the oldest uh, child of six. Oof. Her father was James Smith, who was a well-off architect. And her mother was Elizabeth Hamilton, who was the daughter of one of Glasgow's uh, leading and most successful architects. Wow. Actually, yeah. Yeah, her dad was David Hamilton. Yeah, my old job. I used to have them in my databases. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Little Madeline, she was schooled in England and returned to Glasgow, which she decided she didn't like. And her effort to try and make it more bearable to live up here, eh, she would go to parties and events. Where they lived um, is actually a really lovely area. was known where um, sex workers was quite prominent for that. But, like, it's now, like, the place of, like, a really fancy hotel. Yeah? Yeah, it's called the Blythewood Square. Right. Um, It's got private gardens in the centre. It's beautiful. It's a bit like Charlotte Square. Alright, cool. Um, and it's got private gardens, but it's a bit bigger, and you've got a hotel, which is the whole, one whole side. Um, it's where I stopped Green Day. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, cool picture. It, it's, uh, it's quite nice. Um, like So, yeah, they lived in one of these buildings, even though they were wealthy. They actually, people often think, oh, they own the whole building. It's like a townhouse with three or four, four or five floors. Um, they actually only owned a floor on it. Yeah, the one floor. Yeah, as a young adult, 
she wasn't because she liked to have fun um, she wasn't considered by any means a typical Victorian woman due to her being outgoing and having a busy social life and I assume she liked to get banged a fair bit um, her father, uh, James Smith um, he had another home in the country which he actually built for his family which was common for well-off men to do at the time um, some of them still do exist down the Clyde families tended to just go out there in the summers because it was yeah. and the, it was literally not that far from Glasgow in five, ten minutes and it was lots of green space you're getting away from the city um, the industrial, like the smoke and everything Um, so it was quite a popular way to holiday back then he moved his family actually there to the country home like on a more permanent basis and he only really used this flat to visit if he was doing business in the city like go to his job and things like that so Madeline one day um, she received an anonymous rose on Valentine's Day of 1855 she speculated she kind of had an idea how it came from there was this foreign gentleman who she would see walking the streets sometimes I mean what a way to find your man going I like that one I want that one I want that one Uh, so um, she'd see him walking the streets sometimes um, when she was usually walking with her sister because back then ladies were not allowed to walk alone. Of course not. Yes. the most undignified. Yeah. The man, this French man she thought of, was a Pierre-Emile Longely. Ew. Very fancy. He claimed to be French, but he was actually for Jersey. (laughs) In the Channel Islands. Uh, He was the son of a French nurseryman, which was a gardener. Yeah. Pierre was the oldest um, of five children and was known to dress quite dandily. So, a hipster, basically. Yeah. He was employed by a nurseryman or a seedsman office as a clerk, and he was 10 years older than Madeline. She was actually to be formally introduced to Longely weeks later after receiving the ro- rose. He'd asked a friend called Robert Baird if he could be introduced to her, and they planned a way to somehow be introduced to her, okay. which was basically walking up Suckey Hill Street several times a day in the hope that she would be walking up it. That's pretty dedicated. Desperate, uh, yeah. Could you imagine? I mean, that's like the equivalent of like stalking in social media, like yeah. going across. Liking someone's pages. Like, yeah, like, oh, can't find you Facebook, let's see your Instagram. Like sending messages and all. So they done this, his friend says, aye, all right, let's do this. Yeah, so they would walk up and down the street in the hope that he would meet her. Her sister, Bessie, also knew him, but she originally thought his interest was in her. Oh. Yep. Scandal. So they did meet. Yes. One day, luckily enough, because Suckerall Street is actually quite small, and, I mean, I've bumped into a number of X's on it. <laughs> <laughs> and... After this, Madeline entered into several meetings with the dashing gentleman, being impressed by the foreigner's background. When he would regale her stories of all the French nobility he was related to, which was never actually backed up, so I smell a wee bit of bullshit. Pierre was slightly old-fashioned, and this suggests to me, perhaps, he was a bit controlling, as he didn't like it that she had this party lifestyle. She was kind of like... I suppose Paris Hilton would be now. She liked being single. She went out. She got her like whole. Yeah, he didn't like this. He didn't like her being acquainted with other men. However, he still continued to pursue her. Around the time she met Pierre, she was living with her family out in their country home, 
and this was when she first started corresponding with Pierre in spring of 1855. In her first letter to him, she wrote, I do not feel as if I were writing you for the first time, though our intercourse, (laughs) not in the biblical sense, has been very short, yet we have both become as familiar friends. May we long continue so, and dear Lang, may you be a friend of Papa's, is my most earnest desire. We feel it rather dull here after the excitement of a town life, but then we have so much more time to devote to the study and improvement. I often wish you were near us. We could take some charming walks. One enjoys walking with a pleasant companion and where could we find one equal to yourself? I am trying to break myself off all my very bad habits. It is you I have to thank you for this, which I do so sincerely from my heart. Your flower is fading. I never cast a flower away, the gift of one who cared for me. A little flower, a faded flower, but it was done reluctantly. (laughs) She was really getting into this. This was like... That's horrible. Don't worry, I'm changing everything about myself for for you. For you, but, you know, they both don't sound like awesome people. No. Kind of like a dysfunctional relationship from the start. Um, She continued, I wish I understood botany. More. Oh, fuck yeah, she went on. Jesus Christ. It's like modern day sexing. I wish I understood botany for your sake, as I might send you some specimens of moss. Oft, that must have got Why? We stoner. But alas, I know nothing of that study. We shall be in town next week. We are going to the ball on the 20th of this month. So we will be several times in Glasgow before that. So of course you do not come to row. We shall not expect you. Bessie, this is our sister, desires me to remember her to you. Right on Wednesday or Thursday, I must now say adieu with kind love. Believe me, yours very sincerely, Madeline. Thursday? I know, she's fucking thirsty. It was to him she would lose her v-card too um and and the two would regularly meet outside her window late at night and corresponded a great deal where she was very persistent in the relationship and he would often stick his willy through the grates and she would give it a wee lick (laughs) you made that up yeah damn it (laughs) i wanted to see if i could convince you it was actually true her parents they were not aware of of this affair with Pierre until well, I hope not. Yeah, in those days. <laughs> well, it wasn't until her sister Bessie oh. realizing that her sister was jealous, wee bent, banging the man she liked. She, out of jealousy, told her father that she had been walking with a gentleman. Walking. Wow. Walking. Maybe that shouldn't have been an L there. Her father, when finding out about this affair, he was not happy. And Madeline went as far as trying to create a situation where Pierre could bump into them in the hope that her father might actually like his company. But that never happened. And her dad ordered her to end the relationship with Pierre because he found out he was basically penniless and a foreigner. And they didn't take kindly to foreigners. Madeline, obviously, because you know what daddy says, realised that she had to end the relationship much to her dismay at her parents' reaction. She claimed that she did not have the time to meet Pierre and they should discontinue their letters 
and she asked him to not tell anyone of their affair. But it seems as if, as though they did continue to meet, even letting him in her house if she had an empty. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pierre, at this time, he'd made a friend and confidant, Mary Arthur Perry, an elderly woman. She was a widow of a rich man. She frequented the same church as him. Yep. Oops. She was looking for a wee sugar wee baby. Toy boy. Aye. Jolly visit her and confide his love to her, Miss Perry. Miss Perry would ask him to invite Madeline round for tea, which she did, or she would le- Mary would leave them both to themselves. So, because they of- oh. they didn't often have the privacy, they could only oh, yeah. ever really be in each other's. Bring company. your illicit over here, uh, man. Yeah. Her father, eh, sorry, Madeline's father. He discovered yet again that they were still seeing each other. Scandal. Yeah, and came with much harsher approach, and forbade eh, to see him. Um, this is when she wrote another letter, not only to Pierre, but his close friend, Mary Perry. She thanked Mary for her kindness in facilitating the relationship and apologised and asked her to comfort Pierre. But Pierre, he was not having none of her shite. He wrote back, accusing her of treating him badly and not allowing him to prove he was a good man. He claimed she was deceitful, pursued him and played with him, and he felt that she had not been as honest to her father about the intensity for her feelings towards Pierre or the relationship. Although no one is sure that the letter he wrote this in actually was ever posted. Alright. But you can tell by that letter how he does feel about her. And he's pretty desperate to not let her go. But yet again, somehow Madeline continued with him as though she seemed... Like to get some enjoyment out of it all. She liked yeah, being she chased. Liked the ad- the drama she the liked the admiration. They did meet more. He would actually come out to their country home in the middle of the night. You can't see me, but I am shocked. And he would meet her in the, ho- the house in the city, which they had a maid, which would help keep it kind of clandestine, along with Miss Perry. Their letters did grow more passionate and frequent into the December of that year, each referring to each other, weirdly, um, as husband and wife. Mm. Her letters became more shocking. Also, she was quite open about sex, and this shocked Pierre a bit too, um, because how dare a woman talk about getting her hole? Around this time, he'd also been ill, and she urged him to visit a doctor, and keep in mind, this was December. In her letter, she talked of their marriage and that they should marry in Edinburgh as uh, she felt that the bans could be objected in Glasgow due to her prominence in the city. Um, your bans, which are still something we do today, it's a document posted with your intention to marry to the public so anybody in the public that thinks has a reason or a legal reason why you should not wed like maybe you're married to somebody else um you have a family this do you have any objections to why this couple should yeah so they get posted like for two weeks no a month i think before your wedding so somebody has a month to object because we had to do it when we got married so yeah like you still have to post your bands Wow. It's still carried out today. It's weird though because nobody really looks at them, so it's not as if somebody'd be like, "Oh, I hear she's getting." I mad. know him. <laughs> yeah, that's my husband. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was for yeah. because obviously they don't have the databases they do now. Yeah. Um, it would have been quite easy to have a family in every city in well, Scotland. Still do. Yeah, true. <laughs> Pierre would visit their country house often. And this was where she would lose her V-card to him. In the garden, she was obviously classy, knee-deep in roses, with just a wee prick. 
<laughs> True. She continued to write to him, being more and more honest about their their sexual relationship, which would ultimately not work in her favour in the end. Although in Pierre's letters he would blame her parents and her for the fact they could not be open, he urged her to marry him and tell the family and persuade them somewhere or another. He even went as far as accusing her of being in a sexual relationship before him and accusing her of not putting him first, which guys do, obviously, when they don't get their way. So... In true pump and dump fashion, Madeline started to withdraw from him. Although she was still writing love letters into the summer of 1886, still confirming she wished to marry him and going as far as discussing how they would live. I mean, she's stringing him along. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, like, it's, she could have easily distanced herself she's and gradually phased out the letters, but she's continuing to pretend it's like... Yeah, he's going to be angry because men don't know how to deal with feelings. So, Madeline, as well, had actually been courting a gentleman bachelor at the time by the name of Billy Minnich. (laughs) (laughs) Much to her father's approval, as he had a good job and a good standing in society, even though in her letters to Pierre, where she told him if he hears rumours of her to dismiss them, she even talked about Billy in her letters, and by the autumn of 1886, the talk of marriage between Pierre and Madeline had diminished. She entertained Billy more and continued the sex times with Pierre, so it seems like... Had your cake and eat it too. Yeah, it was a bit of a friends with benefit. The letters were less and less and the declarations of love were not talked of as much. Madeline claiming that it was her family's doing as they were watching her every move. Both Madeline's family had moved back to Blycewood Square and Pierre had actually moved to another house in Franklin Street, meaning they were actually closer. They were probably about 10-15 minute walk now from each other and her her house was um, on street level. Mm-hmm. so it was easier for him to contact her so they could talk to each other through the window she would often on a cold night hand him hot cocoa which that's she, nice. yeah that's quite sweet are you confused yet because so am I as their love affair in her opinion was ending yet she still continued with him yeah. so perhaps the unfolding events and Pierre's reaction are plausible she and Billy Minnick seen each other regularly and would attend balls and the theatre together while she continued to lead Pierre on. In the January of 1857, she accepted a proposal from Billy, much to her family's delight. Still, Madeline was writing and meeting Pierre. I mean, this girl doesn't fucking get it, does she? She she tried to, she did try to break off the engagement with Pierre, and he did not respond, returning her letter, which she did not take kindly of. Letting him know if her letter was to be returned to her again, she would cut all contact with him and also ask that he does not reveal anything about the relationship and return the letters she sent. She even told him to consider themselves as strangers if ever their paths crossed. Sounds like someone's up yeah. to something. So it's like she was out of order. Yeah. And his reaction was out of order. But You're all out of order. <laughs> the things did not go though the way she intended. Not. As Pierre did not return the letters and he did not respond by letter either well, now he's got to her demands. So she wrote him another letter in the February 
asking him to bring me the parcel of the letters in a Thursday evening writing. I trust your honour as a gentleman that you will not reveal anything that may have been passed between us. But, true little angry boy fashion, Pierre didn't take it well. He goes on to reply with a poor attempt at blackmail by saying he will give the letters to her father unless she marries him. And she begs him frantically not to. Madeline, obviously worried about her father finding out, burned most of her letters. But Pierre kept his letters. Yeah. Including those that he specifically those knew letters. were going to damn her if he ever showed anybody them. And he knew that it would prove that she wasn't the innocent one in the relationship because she could easily Easy. turn around and say, oh, that he's a jealous lover, he's been spurned, but he had proof that she had been leading them on yeah. the whole time. And as much as that is still, that is not a considered excuse, these days it would have been considered her fault yeah. then. She was desperate. She wrote him a letter pleading not to bring shame upon her and if he ever loved her, like he said, and told him she was worried ill and said that death would be sweet. But who's death? And how sweet? Yes. According to many documents, the story goes is that she later had been witnessed at a druggist, which was a pharmacy or chemist, ordering arsenic, which she signed for using her initials, claiming they were for household purposes, such as killing rats, which she used it for... She also claimed oh. she used it for beauty purposes. However, in, the, in the book, which I really helped me with my research, um, is a, by an author called Jack House called The Square Mile of Murder, he alleged that she had asked the family's page boy, William Murray, to collect a small vial of Prussic Prussic acid, which is cyanide, for her hands. Murray went to retrieve some from a local doctor's surgery. However, the clerk said he could not get it without a note from her doctor due to it being a poison. Murray relayed this back to Madeline, who was not really that bothered about it. This was on the same day that Pierre also decided to keep a diary, which would later be produced in court. But it was excluded from evidence because he could not cross-examine the writer. Madeline, yet again, glutton for punishment, wrote to Pierre... Some kink she's got. I know. She met him at Miss Perry's, possibly in an attempt to keep on his good side so she could retrieve the letter somehow. He notes in his diary that he seen Madeline and also been ill had been ill during the night. Over the passing days, he carried on his normal routine. Also seen a doctor and receiving medicine um, because he was quite sick, feeling quite sick. And the other people in the lodgings had noticed his come and goings and his sickness, his bouts of sickness, and that he, he had told them that he was in a lot of pain. This was around the 20th of February this happened. And it was on the 21st that Madeline had been witnessed buying arsenic from a druggist. On that day, Pierre noted in his diary that he felt ill again. And on the Sunday, the 22nd, he met with Madeline yet again and he took ill even more. (laughs) On the morning of Monday the 23rd, he rang a bell and one of his lodgers went to find him on the doorstep vomiting. She'd found him quite a few times like this before. His other lodger went to fetch a doctor. I'm guessing he's not just half cut. Yeah, no, he's not. Well, at first they thought he was. Yeah. He had to convince the doctor he hadn't taken a drink because they thought he was just drunk. Yeah. 
he seemed to get slightly better. He, and he wrote to Madeline again to tell her how ill he got. Madeline again returned to the druggist to inquire why the arsenic she bought was white. The pharmacist, he informed her that by law it must be mixed with a colour so, so, you can see it. so it doesn't get mixed up with other yeah. household goods, like things they would use. Throughout, she continued to write Pear. As things continued, he confided to Miss Perry that he did not understand why he could be so ill um, after having a coffee and some hot chocolate that Madeline gave him, suggesting that she's kind of putting it in there, the or planting that Madeline was possibly poisoning him because he'd mentioned this a few times, actually. Again, as he continued to write, Pierre would be getting more and more frustrated and angry with how cold she was and the attempts she'd put off meeting. And he asked her, finally, if it was true that she was engaged. Throughout the next few weeks, Madeline would buy arsenic a further three times, claiming it done her a good job of killing rats, which mm-hmm. was later to be found untrue as her house in Blythewood Square had none. And any rats in the summer home had been dealt with as well. Funny that. Yeah. So around 2.30am, Pierre's fellow lodger, Miss, Mrs Jenkins, she was another lodger. So around 2.30am, Mrs Jenkins, who was a fellow lodger, um, was awoken suddenly. She'd found Pierre doubled in pain yet again at the door. So she helped him into his room and got him water and tried to keep him warm. She managed to conduct a doctor but the doctor was too ill to come out and advise her and what to do which involved giving him some laudanum and a mustard blister which I don't know what that is. The doctor had got better and Pierre had got worse so the doctor got out of his sick bed and came to see Pierre after it got worse but he couldn't see anything um, physically wrong with Pierre and suggested it was internal which was some great work there. Yeah. <laughs> he Basically he told Pierre to rest and Pierre got worse and the doctor came back the next day to find him lying dead. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a bit worse. So Things have deteriorated. Yeah, that's bad. That's, yeah. Uh, that's definitely internal. Yeah. <laughs> so Pierre died and he was buried in an unmarked grave in Ramshorn Cemetery in Ingram Street, which is in the city centre, which is like not far, just like literally down the road from Queen Street Station. So after his death, letters were found in his lodging in Franklin Place in the west end of Glasgow, uh, which is just now Great Western Road. Okay. Um, it's just the one road. The block of flats, they're not there anymore. However, the rest of the building still stand. So his block will be different, but the ones beside it would be the same okay. as they were. Um, I actually lived across from it. And I, it was sad because at the time I didn't know of this. And they also found letters in his office desk. In total, there were 198 letters from her. What? But only 60 were actually presented as evidence. When his lodgings were searched, they had found that Pierre started his diary in which he records being ill suspiciously enough every time he visited Madeline. And he also wrote that he'd told a few of his friends, including Miss Perry, that he suspected he'd been poisoned. And he wrote to Mary Perry, I can't think why I was so unwell after getting that coffee from her. If she were to poison me, I would forgive her. This was a few days before he died. So, his post-mortem shows 
that a vast amount of arsenic was in his stomach, then along with the discovery of the letters, the police went to arrest Madeleine. She spent three months, in pri- three months in prison, during which she seemed very unfazed, like nothing was happening, and I think she was treated a lot better than most of the... Very well. The young girl with money. Yeah, uh-huh. So, uh, even after her stay, she actually wrote to the warden and prison staff thanking them for treating her so well. Mm-hmm. This was like a wee holiday for her. Yeah. And she also admitted that she was not pleased with the judge and the jury's verdict and felt it was appropriate that she would be considered not guilty. Oh, did she know? <laughs> right. So, the trial... Okay. <laughs> it took place over nine days, began on Tuesday 30th of June, 1857. And, of course, Madeline Smith had the best defence money could buy when it came to the trial. Representing her was... John Inglis, the Lord Glencourse, who was a prominent judge and politician at the time. John Inglis was thought of one of the best legal minds of his time and who went on to lead a brilliant defence for Smith, even though he actually considered her guilty. So her own <laughs> yeah. lawyer. Yeah, yeah but it doesn't it. matter, he was getting money for it. The appointed judges for the trial were lost Lord Justices, Justice Clerks, Lord Ivory and Lord Handy Sickle. <laughs> Handy Sickle. Oh, it's like a double barrel name. Handy Sickle. Sounds Um, like some kind of sex act. Yeah. So throughout this whole ordeal, she remained quite defiant. She was so unfazed, so calm. Yeah, everybody didn't know. Like, you think if you were on murder, you'd somehow... You'd be a bit... Distraught. Yeah. Um... The charges presented to Madeleine Smith were a bit of a mouthful, as she was used to, um, (laughs) for wickedly and feloniously administering arsenic or some other poison in some article of food or drink to Pierre-Emile Longelay, then in the employment of W.B. Higgins & Co. as a clerk, first on the 19th and 20th of February, second on the 22nd and 23rd of February. And the third charge was the intent to murder. Okay. And therefore died on the forenoon of Monday, 29th of March. That is a long charge. Yeah. It was actually longer. That was only some of it. (laughs) The trial was somewhat scandalous and was a bit of a media sensation due to her being a woman of higher class and the contents of the letters. This was like kind of like pornography considered. Yeah. And her promiscuity being being considered taboo in Victorian times. The evidence presented were the letters, the toxicology evidence that he had died of the poisoning. The toxicologist was Andrew Douglas McClagan. Even the circumstantial evidence pointed towards her being guilty. And that was that she had purchased the arsenic weeks prior to the murder and having the motive of him blackmailing her and her deep fear of embarrassing her family and herself, which was quite a big thing. Also the fact that he was puking his guts up after she came to visit him. Yeah, it's a bit obvious. Another critical part of the evidence was the letters that she wrote, as I have mentioned. Some (laughs) Some of the more incriminating letters were undated, so the case relied on the envelopes collected. There was one letter in particular which was received negatively by the judge due to the date and the postmark being illegible, meaning 
this letter was apparently damning but it couldn't be counted as evidence in the case because it didn't have a correct date mark. Sadly as well, that the reason why out of 139 they could only use 60 letters was the police bungled it. When they searched his lodging, they basically grabbed the letters and any without envelopes were shoved in any free envelope or any other letter within right, an envelope. So... so Contaminated the evidence. Yeah, not even that. It was the dates. Yeah. Didn't if the so dates the date didn't, didn't correspond. Yeah. Uh huh. So, yeah, another damning piece of evidence, which was part of the third charge of murder, was as follows: Pierre Longelet, who wasn't in good health and left his home at ten a.m. on Thursday, the nineteenth of March, to go to the Bridge of Allen via Edinburgh where he seemed to ask after a letter quite desperately that he was expecting, but he never received. Pierre was disappointed, but he continued to his final destination. On the afternoon of that Thursday, a letter from Smith arrived at his premises on 11 Franklin Place on Great Western Road, and that was forwarded on to him by a friend and lodger called M. Thou. The letter was never actually found, but on Friday the 19th of March, he wrote to his friend and confidant, Mary Perry, that I should have came to see someone last night, but the letter came too late, so we were both disappointed, assuming that someone was Madeleine. Yeah. On the morning of Longelay's death, Madeleine conveniently left the city to go to her family summer house. Of course. And this, all of this, was the major part of the evidence kind of meant that she was capable of deceit because she was having an affair that she was keeping from everybody and also she told her fiance that she was ashamed of something he had done she had done sorry and another letter from Madeline, which was postmarked as Saturday the 22nd which again was forwarded to him and arrived on the Sunday morning Here are some excerpts from the letter. So the letter goes, Why, my beloved, did you not come to me? Oh, my beloved, are you ill? Come to me, sweet one. I waited and longed for you, but you came not. I shall wait again tomorrow night, same hour and arrangements. Oh, come, sweet love, my own dear love of a sweetheart. Come, beloved, and grasp me to your heart. Come, and we shall be happy. A kiss, fond love, adieu, with tender embraces. Ever believe me to be your own, even dear, fond Mimi. And that was a lot of cum. <laughs> I did notice you emphasising the word cum throughout. <laughs> but I was distracted by... I say cum dis- that way normally, but which cum? Cum which way? Oh, I want that in a t-shirt, cum which way? <laughs> For someone who was reported to have rejected him and moved on. This letter kind of comes across like they're both still involved and they're still heavy, so. still heavy pumping each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> During the trial, many excerpts from these letters were read aloud, along with the presentation of the arsenic she used to poison him. These letters caused shock due to the content and her seeming enjoyment of the sexy times. One that was read aloud was... My nightdress was on when you saw me. <laughs> How titillating. But it wasn't when you left me. <laughs> would to God you have been in the same attire, we would be happy. What, what a filthy bitch. Two of them in your nightdress. <laughs> I know. I'm like... That's really dressed. Yeah. Why uh-huh. She's, a, she's right. She, she's probably considered like 
dirty, filthy bitch back then. Oh, like, yeah. I could imagine, like, ever hearing a woman say that dirty. shit. I mean, this doesn't seem, I suppose, in our day, quite sexually explicit. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. worse, to be honest. Um, but in context of the times, oh, yeah. a woman was not to enjoy sex and it was only allowed in the marital bed. This is for baby making and pleasing <laughs> your husband. In most of her letters, she was always extremely insistent that he come to meet her and actually instigated a lot of this talk of love and the dirty talk, if you can call it that. So, after receiving this wee dirty letter, um, Longely went to Sterling and Foot. Fuck that. Walked to Sterling. Aye. Bit of a trip. Just a wee stroll, aye. So, he got a train to Coat Bridge, which is even fucking further away. And he headed for Glasgow by... F- oh, he got the train. train he from walked to Stirling. From Edinburgh. Yeah. Coatbridge. So Whoa. he walked from Edinburgh to Stirling, got the train from Stirling to Coatbridge. He's keen. Yeah. So then from Coatbridge, he headed for Glasgow by foot around 8pm. He then headed out and was seen around Blythewood Square, Madeline's residence, yeah. at around 9.20pm. On his way, he called into a friend who was not in... And this is where the Lord Advocate surmises when he was next seen at his door by his landlady at 2am with barely any strength to open his front door. And to be honest, if I walked from Edinburgh to Stirling then Coatbridge to Glasgow, I'd be pure enough. I'd be be fucked. (laughs) Um, I'd probably curl up and die on the way. I wouldn't even reach home. Then he died the next day at noon on Monday 23rd, 1980. No, not 1857. 1957, fuck's age, So, the evidence presented in defence of Smith, in her defence, sorry, claim that killing Pierre would not have saved her from scandal as he still had the letters which would have been discovered if he died. There is only his notebook to provide proof that they actually met and there were no witnesses because she burned her letters. They also claimed that she bought the arsenic after Pierre's first bout of sickness, so he was already sick before she started buying it. Right. Like, all the receipts show. That could have been a coincidence. Yeah, but the arsenic she had was coloured with soot, which was common, as I said before, to differentiate against common household products. And the arsenic found in Pierre's stomach was white. But then I remember yeah, she, she asked... Yeah, she asked why. It yeah, ah. Uh, Pierre had also told people that he wanted revenge. Ugh. Quite a few people had told, and it was suggested by the defence that... Are he, they building up a suicide? I don't... I, uh, Sorry. No, no. Pierre had... Yeah. So it's also suggested that he actually... Def- coached Miss Perry and suggesting the notion like planting that thought in her head so she would automatically think it was poison when he took ill he actually originally asked for Miss Perry so the defence think that she was in in the whole thing and he expected her to come quick and alert the doctor before he died so the doctor could fix him okay. before he died but they got there too late yeah she did she arrived there too late basically so they think that he possibly poisoned himself to maybe try and make Madeline feel sorry for him and care for him more, so he still had, like, some reason to be in connection with her. But then with the revenge talk, he could have been trying to kill himself and then regretted it, which is why he asked for help. The revenge would have come from 
the fact that he's killed himself yeah those uh-huh. letters yeah but these all suggest that it was either him or her yeah that it was just a scorned lover um, the judges had also refused to allow Pierre's diaries to be used on the basis that they could not be cross-examinated and could not could be considered reliable. And these are the things that would ultimately save her. This defence was actually considered quite good. They also even managed to turn the fact that she bought poison in her favour for imaginary rats that she would not have so openly bought the poison if she was aiming to be dreadful. Yeah. Or she could have just been an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Based on her defences, defences argument, a lot of people thought she was innocent and continued to believe so. Madeleine Smith's team pleaded not guilty to, and their argument was how can basically was how can such a pretty little thing be capable of such a crime oh, on account off. of <laughs> on account of her sex, youth, beauty, stand and standing in society. The rom- and the romantic involvement incidents involved in the case this caused great excitement in the courtroom because we all know the Victorians were secretly ginky as fuck (laughs) Uh, the excitement stretched from not only Glasgow to Edinburgh but the whole country a famous artist of the time Dante Gabrielle Rossetti declared her too beautiful to be executed whether guilty or not by saying you wouldn't hang a stunner which is a term um, (laughs) so basically you're ugly you can get to fuck (laughs) (laughs) no she's too ugly she done it Stunner is a term, basically, that this artist used regularly, meaning he thought she was too hot to be executed. He sounds like a bit of a uh, ladies' man and wanted an about her afterwards. Probably gave him more fame and admiration. Yeah. Uh, She was eventually found not proven, which is a very unique Scottish law. It means when you're proven not guilty um, that you probably did do it, but we can't prove it. So we can't find you guilty. So it's still got a little um, hint of guilt in that not proven, which actually recently um, there's been a rape case and this girl is her, her rapist got not proven and she's trying to get that term out yeah. of the court system. But it's basically, we know you did it, we just don't know how, so we can't prove it. Yeah, so this lets the jury decide if the evidence was proof enough on its own to the accused's guilt or innocence. The verdict, even though not guilty, it still implicates guilt. Many felt that this was unfair and that the fact she wasn't allowed to be interrogated and her exoneration was purely based on the fact she was female and the possibility that it was all peers doing because again how can a pretty little thing be capable of such a thing and that was it she was allowed to go free so (laughs) so after the trial madeline eh, she couldn't shake her reputation a bit and notoriety from the high profile case so she felt she couldn't go back to her normal life Although later, according to novelist and playwright Somerset Maugham, she admitted she killed Pierre and would do it again. She was also quoted as saying to H.B. Irving, who was a famous stage actor and manager at the time, I suppose you all want to know whether I did it or not. I did. And what's more, if it were to all happen again, I'd do it again. But again, these were quite 
dramatic people like this playwright and actor. It sounds like the sort of people she would be about. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But this was after the trial. So she actually changed her name to Lena. She moved to London, which was aided by her father. Obviously. In London, she mingled. Uh, She was friends um, with some of her father's acquaintances. Sorry, acquaintances. um, Some leading artists, writers and minds of the time. Her dad, James, who was also quite embarrassed, was quite happy to have her down in London. Even went bankrupt over it. But he still managed to keep his position as an architect and still paid for her to have elocution lessons and to shed her Scottish accent. And he also paid for an apartment for her and her brother in Chelsea, in London. Oh, just a wee student yeah. type place uh-huh, Yeah, aye. He also had many prominent contacts. She met a guy, George Wardle, who would become her husband. He was a pre-Raphaelite painter. Mm. And Wardle was also, which I actually got quite excited about this, um, because I studied a lot of William Morris. He was a business manager um, of William Morris, who was a favourite artist. Um, He was a pioneer of the arts and crafts movement movement that preluded and inspired the Art Nouveau movement. He was friends with Philip Webb, who was an acquaintance of her father, and William Morris, who she worked for, and she met George through. Um, she also went on to have two, ch- two children with him. And her father still continued through all this to um, give her £100 a year. She remained close to her sisters. Even Bessie. What? Even Bessie. Yeah, yeah she still stayed close. Um, and her father, like, was still... Um, he was a witness during her wedding. But... Good old Madeline. She became unsettled as her husband started to travel more, as he gained more pre- prominence. And even with her busy ske- uh, socialite schedule, she was involved in socialist organisations such as the Socialist League, and she became a treasurer of their and many other organisations. Eventually, George retired from Morrison Co, and he travelled to Naples in 1889 whilst he still supported his wife so not only was she getting money from her father still yeah uh uh-huh and with that her children were older so they had moved to america they emigrated to america so she decided in 1893 to travel to new york and she went to arizona in the september of that year and she enjoyed her anonymity um she spent time with her grandchildren. George died in 1910 and Lena went on to meet a man called William Sheehy, a contractor and the son of an Irish immigrant and 25 years younger than her. Documents and papers suggest that she liked to lie about her age. Mm-hmm. As her son sponsored her and it suggests in the papers that he was actually older than her. They got married around 1911 in her 60s and that was the year she also became a naturalised citizen and it is thought William was actually a friend of her son's. He died Uh 15 years later in 1926 when she was 90 so that doesn't make sense. In 1911 she was in her 60s and then in 1926 she was 90 but she wasn't actually 90. She was claiming she was still in her 60s but she passed two years later in 1928 and then her children in the 1930s. So by the sounds of it, she actually lived to quite a 
grand old age because she was claiming she, she would have died in her 90s. Which know. was a long life to live back yeah. then. Like, I think Glasgow had, like, you were lucky if you made it to your 40s. Yeah. Your 40s was considered Absolutely. old age. Amateur cr- criminologist has spent years going over the case. And scholars actually, some of them believe that she didn't do it due to them never actually being witnessed together. Although surely Mary Perry witnessed them together. Yeah, and that Yeah. And but, that Bessie and the guy that introduced them. Yeah. But, like, in the kind of environment that they were meeting, right. nobody was ever around for those clandestine meetings. Yeah. Anytime they met, it was with other people around, so yeah. it was more of a social affair rather than an intimate affair. Yeah. A witness did come forward claiming to have seen seen a young male and female outside of Smith's residence on the evening before his death, but they could not be questioned as the trial was already underway. So, yeah, that was quite an abrupt end there. Sorry, I didn't know how to wind that down. No, no, I But that was it. <laughs> but I think you've covered pretty much everything. Yeah, fuck, that took me forever. I've actually yeah. delved so deep in this that I totally forgot there's three other things I've got to cover. Yeah, <laughs> so... Got a few long episodes coming up then. Yeah, I I try not to go into as much detail. I don't think no, there's as much complications in the others, maybe. Next well. time I see I'm gonna do a short one, I'll actually attempt a short one. Yeah, so you're gonna kinda put about equal footing yeah, with the length. Yeah, you'll probably have this one will be quite long compared to your other ones, so yeah, don't get your hopes up that we're gonna be doing long podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so we probably won't keep you too much longer. Yeah, I think we've both we, talked enough. Yeah, um, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you so much. Please, if you're listening to us on iTunes, please rate and review us. Um, as we said before, we're on Instagram is Slits and Giggles. We are on Twitter, Twitter is Giggle Slits. We've got the Facebook. Which is Slits and Giggles Podcast. Yep. Um, and you can also email us at giggleslits at gmail.com. Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.